Let's get it. Monday, January 4th, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Happy 2021. Hope you're all doing well. Glad to see 2020 in the rearview mirror. However, here on Born the Battle, we are still on holiday hiatus. We're also using the holiday hiatus for some other exciting things. We're putting together the VA podcast newsletter. We're making the VA podcast website. Looking to do some other cool things when it comes to Born the Battle. So again, we'll be back on our regularly scheduled programming next week. Got a good one for you. Just make sure you stay tuned to that. This week, I thought I'd make it a little different. You know, we've had the most downloaded interviews of 2020. We've had the most downloaded benefits breakdowns of 2020. This week, I want to do Tanner's top 10 of 2020. To make this list, basically, you didn't make the top eight of either of the previous two weeks list, but were, you know, important interviews to me for whatever reason. And just because they didn't make the other list doesn't mean that these weren't popular episodes. I mean, episodes four through 15 and download rankings were separated by hundreds, like less than a thousand. So it was a really tight race. So that's why we're having this list. These are in no particular order, unlike last week's and the week prior. We're going to go with episode 208, 214, 221, 212, 194, 213, 187, 203, 192, and 210. Enjoy. You know, Flo, in every video that I see uh, you in or any write-up that, that I, I see, you always speak of Command Sergeant Major Griffin, Major Gray, Major Kennedy, and Alta Fata. And how they relate to the medal that hangs that was hung around your neck? Yeah, it's because it belongs to them and their families. You know, it's individuals who make the ultimate sacrifice. And so, the medal to me is an opportunity to be representing our nation. Right? It doesn't belong to me. It's <laughs> it's the medal of honor for Pete's sake. Right? It's I'm a courier. Uh, I'm, a rep- I'm a representative. I was picked. Uh, to represent the medal and to wear it with honor and to be humbled by it. And to me, every medal that is the, every courier of the medal has a specific story. And my story involves these individuals. And so if I'm going to have a conversation about the medal or my military service, I can promise you that I will bring up the most important people in my story or to this medal. And that's them. There's nothing fair about war. You could be at 100% best trained, top-notch, completely have everything going for, in, in your favor, and one straight bullet shows up and kills you or your friend. So it's it's ugly. It's also, you know, like rolling dice at times, right? And, yeah. you know, we do have the advantages. We have a loaded dice. That's what we have with our training and our background and all the assets that we have. But sometimes, even with a loaded dice, it's you know you you, you have the incomprehensible situation of you know you're going to lose a friend and or someone on your team, and it's going to impact you. And so, survivor's guilt, what to me was the worst part of it. What was it like getting out in 2011 for you, as far as support, as far as um, 
Because that was right before the recession, right? Jobs were still pretty good. Uh, no, that was kind of during the recession, uh, right at the That's right. right at the start of it, pretty much. Uh, uh, it was weird at first. Like it just was one of those things where you just went from a daily routine to then now I moved back in my parents, which a part of me kind of didn't like, but my mom and dad were helping me out uh, with trying to get on my feet and figure out what's going on. And I uh, decided to go back to college uh, and make use of the GI Bill. And I was going to Rowan University in South Jersey. So it's kind of nice to be able to save a little bit, get back on my feet in the normal world and kind of, uh, I don't know, it reconnected me with my parents too, which was a good thing. But um, yeah, it was just a weird time. Going out was always just kind of weird. Like I know grocery stores was always weird because I, I just that was one of the weirdest places. Like anything where there was a bigger crowd, my mom would always kind of be like, you okay? I'm like, yeah, just just need a minute. Just kind of just trying to take in. I'm always, I never, anywhere we go out to eat still now, I don't ever have my back to a room, which is weird. But uh, my girlfriend makes fun of me on that part. But uh, sure, yeah, it took a little bit to adjust. And then even going back to school, I was at 25 and here I am with 18 year olds who are all complaining about everything in the world. And I'm just like, ah, oh, you guys have no idea how good you got it. <laughs> So what did you do when you first got out? Was was wrestling already on your mind? Uh, yeah, wrestling was one of those uh, one of those goals I wanted to attain. Because uh, while I was uh, in, uh, I was home on leave, maybe about right before we deployed on my first tour, I was home on leave. And one of my buddies was on the indies, uh, the independents, and uh, went to a local bar in Rutherford at home in Jersey. And uh, he's like, hey, my buddy uh, Fred's here from WWE. You want to meet him? I was like, hell yeah. Oh, wow. I was like, well, why would I not want to talk to somebody in WWE? So uh, Darren Young is his, uh, he used to go by in WWE. Okay. Yeah. Sat down, we talked for a while and he just, it was one of those things where uh, he's just like, you got a good story. He's like, when you're out, he's like, you have a good look. Once you're out, he's like, just, uh, if you want to f- like pursue this, he's like, don't, don't shun it. And I, at the time I'm just like, there's no way. I was like, I'm not the size of Hulk Hogan. I'm like, that's my thought process. It's like, I'm not 6'4", six, 6'5", six, jacked out of my mind. Yeah. I was like, you have Hulk Hogan, The Rock, Austin. I just You just think of those names. You're like, There's no possible way. And uh, that was just one of those things where I kept in touch. And my buddy Jarrett, when I got out, he's like, hey, you still want to give it a shot? He's like, come to the one school I go to. I was like, yeah, no problem. And then I got in a ring and uh, just it felt natural, uh, felt normal, and uh, fell in love. You were talking about how you got from, uh, from that, you know, that, that first gig and then getting into Paramount. So I ended up getting a a great meeting to go meet with the head of interactive, um, the interactive marketing department. And that was a, that was a very, uh, budding part of the marketing machine for Hollywood, as it were. This was when MySpace was still a big thing and Facebook pages were just starting. So I ended up going to an interview, um, I'll never forget how this went down. I was like basically asked to meet the three creative directors there. And one of the creative directors, I walked into his office. It was the most fantastic, um, like comic filled movie paraphernalia office you've ever seen um, with replicas of like Optimus Prime that were like three feet high in the room. And I was just like, this is the coolest office I've ever seen. He doesn't even look up. He doesn't even look up. He's, he's wearing a hoodie and it's drawn over his eyes. His room is in complete like pitch dark. The shades are drawn. He says, yeah, it's a lot cooler than that suit you're wearing. Suit. 
And I'm like, I feel like I'm an entourage being like accosted right now. And um, so I sit down in the, uh, I sit down in the chair in front of him because he's, he's been asked to meet with me at this point by his boss. And he kind of, he lightens up a little bit and he's like, I'm messing with you. I really have an appreciation for the, the military. And um, let me tell you all the cool things that like I would do with the military and the people that like I've uh, been kind of collecting um, in terms of uh, just my own personal like outreach and sponsorship. And this guy's name is uh, Mickey Capaferi, incredible human being. He ended up hiring me out of that interview because he learned about like all the animation stuff I did. And he's like, you, you could be like a real hands-on guy to help me work with the agencies to like, fix things that take them too long and cost too much money. He's like, the first thing you're doing, yeah. you are going to build and manage the Optimus Prime MySpace page. And I'm like, wait, I'm Optimus Prime now? And he's like, you are Optimus <laughs> Prime now. And some of your best friends are Shia LaBeouf and Megan Fox and Bumblebee. So this was a this was a MySpace page like of Optimus Prime and you had to act like you were Optimus Prime? Yes, I had 500,000 followers and I basically had to like... <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Post updates. I had to make fun of Megatron and, um, you know, basically talk about how great Autobots are. Why, why leave? Why, what was the, why would you, you know, a lot of people would have taken that offer from Paramount is what I'm trying to get at, you know, just because because of the word Paramount. Right. Um, There is a parallel universe where I stayed at Paramount or I stayed at Technicolor. And here's exactly why I left. I, this is going to sound so random and fantastical. And it, it absolutely is a, a, just a completely different chapter of my life. But I was at business school, um, wrapping up the end of, um, of the degree when one of our last classes was business plan development, where we went and found a company and we built a business plan around it, like a go-to-market strategy. Yeah. And uh, a friend of mine from Technicolor, actually came to me and said, Hey, I am making, um, very expensive headphones out of a garage in, uh, orange County. And it's just, it's insane. We can't make them fast enough. And we think that there's a market for like super high end headphones. And this is like right around the beats sale timeframe. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, Hey, let me take your, let me take this business and run it through business plan development. And so we, we built their first business plan, their first set of financials, their first like overarching marketing plan. Uh, and it was done with a team of like five MBAs as like a part of a quasi capstone project. So I gave the business plan back. I got an A in the class. It was lovely. They walked away with their first like set of financials and modeling. And then a couple months later, like right as I was graduating, they got a phone call and he said, um, from my friend again, and he said, Hey, uh, we got a call from Atlantic records. Uh, they want us to fly to New York city and, um, basically pitch the company the company's name is Odyssey. Yeah. Uh, can you, can you go ahead and get on a plane on Friday and go do that? We, we really need you to raise some money for us. You can do that. Right. And I'm like, Oh, absolutely. I, I can do that. I hang the phone up and I'm like, what did I just sign up to do? This is crazy. Uh, <laughs> over the next five days, I worked on a pitch for Atlantic Records, asking them for four and a half million dollars to essentially start moving this company into more of a commercial project. So I fly to New York. I'm meeting uh, the CEO of Atlantic Records. I'm meeting the 
parent company that owns both of uh, Warner Music Group and Atlantic Records, and that CEO of Atlantic Records grabs me. And he says, hey, 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 so you're the, you're, you're the guy doing the pitch today. Um, this is the first time I'm meeting my boss. So if you, if you mess this up, I will absolutely end you. Do you understand me? And this is my first introduction to this individual. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and, and I was literally going on in one minute and the room filled with like these executives. And I'm like, oh, dear Lord, what have I got myself into? Everybody was having a problem staying connected with, with, with guys. And... When, when I talked to the guys that were in my organization, I'd ask them like, hey, why aren't, why aren't you guys reaching out? It was, it was, oh, I, I don't want to be a burden or, you know, I just didn't think about it at the time. And so I started, I went back to the books and I started studying like what happens when somebody's going through a mental health crisis? Like what is physically happening in their brain? And I watched a lot of videos of suicide survivors talking about, uh, they all regretted it. The instant that they committed suicide, they regretted it. And these are all people who have survived, like jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge or, you know, shot themselves, the things like that. Right. Yeah. And so at that moment, they instantly regretted it. And I thought, okay, so what is happening here? What's going on with the brain? And so I found a research study. It said that when somebody's going through a mental health crisis, parts of their brain shut down. So their frontal cortex stops operating uh, normally. So in that, in their frontal cortex, they have rational uh, thought processes. They have good decision-making skills, long-term planning. But the most important thing they have is the ability to overcome impulses. Okay. And so when somebody's going through a mental health crisis, all of those faculties are completely reduced. And we know by talking to suicide survivors that suicide is an impulse, that they had an impulse and they acted on it. And that's the reason they acted on it is because they didn't have the mental capacity to process through it. So it's not that these guys wanted to commit suicide. They just couldn't overcome the impulse to do it. And so I thought to myself, okay, so how now I understand the problem in its entirety. How do we overcome that? And in my time working with veterans, I always gave an ambush analogy. I said, during an ambush, you know, you feel like you've been, uh, you know, the enemy wants to attack you, overwhelm you with fire, separate you from your support network so they can overwhelm you and kill you. Sure. Well, isn't that what a panic attack feels like? That you're being overwhelmed with these thoughts, feelings, and emotions, which makes you isolate away from your friends and family. And then the depression kicks in and it overwhelms you. And then you want to commit suicide. I go, it's just like an ambush. So what are two things that we do? Well, number one, the first thing we do is we start returning fire. And so what are some of the positive things we can start talking to each to, to ourselves about, you know, remind us that, hey, we're in the U.S., we're safe, we're OK. I said, what's the second thing you're going to do? Well, we're going to call for support. OK, you call for support um, on the battlefield. So how do you do that here? How do you call phone a friend, call a buddy when you're struggling with mental health? And guys are like, well, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to be a bother to somebody. I said, well, would you feel embarrassed if you were taking fire and, and radioed in to get some air support? You wouldn't feel embarrassed about that. Like, no, no, not at all. I said, okay, so this is the same thing. So I broke it down to them like that. So with the app, the app, um, it solves this problem in two ways. Number one, uh, when people are struggling with their mental health and they're not able to process, who do I call? What do I say? What do I do? They don't have to worry about that. All they have to do is press one button on their phone uh, and it sends an alert out on the app. So when I first originally designed it, I just designed it for my guys and my organization. And a news story picked it up. I think it was King 5 picked it up. 
and did her story on it. Uh, and about a week later, I got a phone call from a guy named Tony Dayton. And <laughs> guy I went to high school with. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that, that you guys ended up uh, being friends. But Tony Dayton and I, uh, so he's like, I got to meet you. So he meets with me and, and says, hey, you have this app. You know, I want it for my guys in the VFW. Please help me. Uh, you know, I need this app. So was it just, was it just an app? It wasn't on the play store. It wasn't on, it wasn't an Apple like it is now. Um, it was just on your phone. Well, no, it wasn't even developed yet. It was just oh, a concept. Okay. I was trying to raise money. I mean, it cost me over a hundred thousand dollars to build this thing. Wow. So I was, I was trying to, uh, and it wasn't even what the whole news story was about, right? It was about my organization and we just bought a building, a headquarters in Auburn. And that was just a little blip in the, in the, uh, in the newscast tracking, but Tony picked up on it and I said, look, man, I'm trying to raise money. I don't have the money for it. So, you know, if I get money, then, then I'll do it. Yeah. And, uh, a few months go by and he contacts me again. He's like, Hey, one of my guys is really, really struggling. Uh, you know, uh, I need to have this app. And I said, look, man, I haven't been able to get the money. I, I don't know what to tell you. I, <laughs> I, I don't, I just, it's, this thing's gonna cost me 80 grand. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't know what to tell you. And, um, I said, you know, check back with me in a few months and I'll never forget it, man. He called me and said, Hey man, is that app ready? I said, Nope, no money came in, man. I did a Kickstarter campaign, nothing, <laughs> or, you know, go for, no, I did a GoFundMe campaign. Nothing yeah. came in. Yeah. He's like, all right, well, I got to go check on one of my guys, Adam. And I don't know if he's going to be alive when I get there. And I was like, Oh crap. So for the next two days, I walked through that program with that, that process with, with Tony trying to find Adam and they found him and they brought him to the, to the hospital and his wife was there. And then he had another mental health crisis while he was in the hospital and he escaped and he climbed a, uh, radio tower and he was at the top of it and they were trying to talk him down and he was really struggling for days. He was up there and, um, they finally, he finally agreed to come down. And so the fire department put the ladder up there with the basket and he reached for the basket and he grabbed it with one hand and he slipped and wasn't able to hold on. Uh, and he died. Oh, geez. And I remember walking through that with Tony and just thinking, man, I got to do something that this, this happens every day all over America and I have the solution and I'm just not using it. And so I call the real estate agent and I put my house on the market uh, to raise the money to build the app. And uh, it was the easiest decision I ever made, man, just to put my house up for sale to, to build this app. Wow. But my house never sold. It, 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 um, <laughs> so how'd you build the app? <laughs> Some of the other business owners that I know um, – this guy named Matt from Matt Vay Foundation Repair. He he'd been a supporter of what I what I had done, and he he knew me from the business uh, arena. He heard about what I did, and uh, he wrote me an eighty thousand dollars check. Man, he called me and said, "Hey, I want to help. What do you need?" I said, "I need eighty grand." He says, "All right, come to my office, and I'll uh, I'll have a check waiting for you." And so that's how I started. Man, is is uh one single donor i said let's do it yeah i mean i put in an extra like 20 grand um into the pot to you know to, to finish it off but the 80 grand got me started and it got the app on the app store and uh yeah man i'll never forget 
that guy, Matt, when he, when he says, all right, well, let me, let me call my secretary. I'll have a check waiting for you. He goes, I believe in what you're doing. You're going to save lives. I had fellow Marines, people I knew, had them sharing with other Marines. And then there were people that I had known that were in the prepper community and survival community. They had had copies yeah. and they had spread it around. And they, and so, and those, and by the way, still to today, that, that, that's a pretty decent size of the demographic that, that do read the, my books. And they were all coming back with very, very positive you know, responses to, to beta reading. Of course, little issues here and there, but the overall response is overwhelming. Like this book is great. And so I, that's why I just decided, again, I sided with them, fired her, hit self-publish. And wow, the first 10 days, it kind of languished. You know, I was like uh, selling about 10, 20, you know, books a day. And I was like, well, I guess it's just going to pay for dinner, you know, out with my wife once a month. <laughs> this is it. Maybe I shouldn't have fired Margaret. You know, I was like really like wringing my hands. And I just remember waking up one day and the sales had spiked dramatically. And I was like, wow, my, you can ask my wife this. I literally jumped out of bed. Like what is going on? And because I'm not sure if you've ever seen like the Kindle direct publishing dashboard where you can uh, like see books as they're sold. I'm not sure if you publish a book. I've never published a book. No, no. Okay. So it, it's, it, it's not the, the dashboard itself is almost in real time. Like every time you click refresh, it can show you your sales. Okay. It's, it's interesting how Amazon has that set up and it can be really bad if you're a compulsive person because you're all constantly on the refresh, refresh, refresh. <laughs> and I, I just was doing that and there was, you know, every time I was seeing refresh, like 25 sales, 10 sales, like it, it just wouldn't stop selling. And I was thinking, I was telling my wife, I was like, maybe this is a fluke. Maybe the Amazon's doing some promotional thing on the book. I'm not seeing, I don't know what's going on. I couldn't figure it out. I hadn't done any marketing on it really. And it was just selling. And so that's, I said, well, maybe I'll just give it to till tomorrow and they'll probably go back to doing 10 units a day. And then it, but it didn't stop. And then a week like that, and just it just wouldn't stop selling. Well, what are we talking about? Hundreds, thousands in a day. So we're so at the time I was doing I was doing hundreds of units a day um, compared compared to the ten that you were doing that first week. Yeah. Did yeah. you ever Did you ever find out what the spike was attributed to? I, I still to this day I don't know. I know it frustrates because I, I I coach writers today and I mentor people and they always want to what's the, how, so how did the first book do it I'm like I don't know I really don't know I don't know <laughs> I really don't know what 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 did it that's interesting yeah it's the craziest thing but but all, all I know is when I saw that happening I I saw that the door of opportunity was wide open really really impactful poem that that you know I'm glad you sent that to me um, I had a journalism instructor once tell me that. Your story needs to be able to stop the person who is chopping celery while cooking dinner and pay attention. Mm. And I just, your poem definitely made me stop from chopping my celery. Thank you. Um, I wrote it. it I mean, it, it's true. It's just a story that came out in a way I did not expect. I wasn't a poet before I wrote it. Um, but that was your first poem. That was the first poem. Yes. And like I said, wow. it was supposed to be a suicide letter, but apparently I was supposed to still be here. <laughs> and um, that's what came out. And so I was just like, I just wrote it. I hadn't really been able to talk to anyone about it before. And so I don't know if it was just me listening to the music at that moment that inspired it the way that it came out. Um but it really opened up that door for me to be able to express myself, which is what I needed at that time. 
before COVID-19, before coronavirus, you were traveling all over the the, the country. Talk to me about yes. some of the, the power of poetry uh, from, from your perspective, from what you've seen. Poetry is a window into the soul for me. It's a reflection of life, whether that be your life capturing someone else's life or just the nature of life around us. And a lot of times we aren't able to express things verbally and talk to each other. So poetry allows me to connect with people and to realize that I'm not the only one going through this and there is someone else who may be going through this. Um, and so it's just a written form of saying all of that. Have people come to you and said, I know exactly what you're talking about in your poetry? Every time I perform. Was um, was overall command a goal at this point for you? You know, it. You know, I thought eventually if, if I kept going that it, it would be. I mean, I never in a million years thought I'd be the first. <laughs> never. That was not the goal. The goal was <laughs> to have a career commensurate with my male counterparts. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And so I did the best I could, just like everybody else. At that point, was it known that no woman had ever commanded a vessel in the Navy? Yes. But, you know, there were women who were senior to me who were in the surface warfare community, which is related. Yeah. And so I was thinking eventually one of them would. And in fact, one woman was selected for command before me. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen, though. And she went to command after I did. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, when did you know that you were going to get the call to command your own ship? Well, I had, I was on, I was XO and we were on deployment. I was on the USS Hoist and um, my detailer's like, you need to get engineering officer of the watch qualified. Now this was like the last qualification I needed, but I'm not an engineer. And so it was really scary to me, but being on a diesel ship, it actually turned out to be fairly straightforward. So now I was XO of the ship and I'm finally getting my, engineering officer of the watch qualifications. And then after that, I got selected for command. But again, I didn't think I would be the first one. Yeah. You know, because my detailer's like, well, you know, we can give you a little break because I had, I basically gone from sea duty, sea duty, sea duty, three, three ships in a row. Yeah. With a little break in between for schools, but you know, so I'm like, fine. You know, they're like, well, we'll send you to the war college. Okay, fine. Oh, no, we'll send you. Okay, fine. I mean, I was pretty open to whatever they wanted to do with me. I, sir, I, ma'am, whatever you want. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, but I knew I was going to command eventually. Yeah. And so, but apparently up at the Bureau of Naval Personnel, there was a little bit of a discussion about who was going to be the first woman to command a ship. Because this other woman, like I said, had been selected first. Yeah. But she had been reassigned to a, um, a another three-year tour before, between her executive officer tour and her commander tour. Gotcha. So they're, they were looking whether to pull her out of her current job. But but my detailer was like, I need I need Darlene. I don't have the, the depth and breadth of officers that the surface warfare community has. So I need this woman to go into command. And... And it, it will be the first, but, you know, I need her. So it was really not 
political, but it just was a necessity. Well, that's how it should have been. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. The but needs was, of the Navy. But it, but it still became kind of political. Oh, sure. Sure. Of, of, the, course it, of course. The thing. Now, the other woman, did she end up becoming a commander too? She did. What was her name? Um, Deborah Gerns. And then shortly after that, another woman named Jeannie Miller uh, became uh, CO. So. Got you. We were the first three and, and the other two happened in 91. Got you. So. 1990. I mean, right. how old was the Navy at that point? Oh, I don't know. 200 and some years old. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's amazing <laughs> that it took that long. Well, you know, the whole gender stereotypes of women and their roles in society were, were changing. I mean, they had been changing since the 70s, but you're, it just took the military a little bit longer to accept some of that stuff. Your generation and the generation before that saw a lot of that. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. And of course, you know, the government's usually about a generation behind on anything. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so your bio says that you've all that you were employed uh, in Appalachia and in Catskills backcountry as a ranger, trail build, builder, caretaker. Um, one, is that part of being a park ranger? You, is that for U.S. Forest Service? Is that uh, who employed you? And two, what was your professional journey to, to get to that type of career from college? Right. So I got out of the military. It was Christmas uh, 1993. And then uh, I think I started college just a couple months later and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Like most college students, I had no clue yeah. where I was going to end up after my university. And um, heard about this unique program uh, in the Adirondacks at a small community college, North Country Community College, Wilderness Recreational Leadership. Hmm. Wow, what is this? And basically, it's a program where they take students and they teach you how to plan and lead expeditions and then teach others how to do that. So, it concentrates on… Like like Lewis and Clark style? No, more like, um, you know, if you were going to maybe have a, a climbing expedition uh, on some big mountain or, um, you're going to lead, uh, people into the mountains, maybe younger people and teach them how to backpack and stuff like that. So it, yeah, it's centered on, uh, just hard skills of backpacking, some climbing, winter camping, canoeing, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, probably about 60% of the program was the leadership components. You know, how do you lead? How do people respond to different leadership styles, communication, all that good stuff. So I got that associate's degree and then I followed the lead of a good friend of mine who lives in Lake Tahoe. At the time, he was a ski bum. This is the mid 1990s. And the man <laughs> is brilliant. He came up with what he <laughs> he came up with what he called the reverse retirement plan. And so the reverse retirement plan works like this. Through your 20s and 30s, you regard yourself as retired. So you sleep on a lot of couches and you climb a lot of mountains and you work part-time and and maybe you hike some long distance trails and you travel and then you grow up when you're 40. And that's basically what I did. So I was doing a lot of seasonal work. So I worked as a backcountry ranger for the state of New York in the Adirondack Park and the Catskill Park. I was a trail builder for a couple of private organizations, the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service. And then I was a caretaker 
uh, and Ridge Runner on the Appalachian Trail up in Maine. So basically what I'm doing is uh, going to school one semester a year, working about six months of the year, and then traveling for two months and paid my own way. Um, but it was a very rugged, bare bones lifestyle. I still remember I lived in the back of my Subaru wagon in a gravel pit in New Hampshire for an entire summer and just ate ramen and peanut butter. So it's a very scrappy <laughs> life, but I enjoyed a lot of freedom. And uh, not to get too far ahead in the story, I eventually got my master's degree and now I actually have a real job and I'm all grown up. But <laughs> the uh, reverse retirement plan is absolutely brilliant. So that's kind of how I got into that type of work. And those are the jobs that I had. I've been very fortunate. I've spent a lot of time in the mountains getting paid to be there. Do you feel like uh, it's good training for accountability to be out in the mountains and then come back into society and go, you, you, do you find yourself being more accountable within the societal norms that you're talking about because of that experience in the mountains? I think so. Probably just because I've spent so much time in the mountains. So, people will say to me, um, oh, what are you doing this week? And I'm, I'm going hiking. And they think it's kind of like a one-off thing. You know, they're like, oh, I went hiking twice last year, which is fine. Yeah. But they don't understand like, this is just what I do. You know, this is kind of my, my life and my life style, which I've been doing since the mid 1980s. And so, it's not necessarily, well, I go hiking and I come back with this renewed level of responsibility. It's just that in the mountains, uh, when you're out there for several years off and on, you realize that you have to be very conscientious uh, in your decisions. And I think that has come out in my personality. People have described me as methodical. That's kind of <laughs> the, uh, mm. the word that keeps coming up. And I get what they're saying. You know, Maybe I would prefer, hey, Eric's really cool or Eric's really fun to be around. But they're like, yeah, Eric, he's he's very measured. He's very methodical and logical. And he kind of goes into things with a very clear minded. Um, and it works well in the mountains. It works very well in the mountains. And then some of those skills yeah. can transfer back into, quote unquote, uh, normal life. When we first started in 1942, it was only focused on active duty. Yeah. And similar with the other... And and I remember that from my time in. I just right. remember it was just for active duty. And it has changed over time. So here's a couple of, this is who's eligible for AER. Very Active good. duty and their families, retired soldiers, other service members and their families, a medically retired, if you're receiving a medical retirement pay from Defense Finance and Accounting Service, survivors, so if you lost your loved one and you're a survivor, you're eligible to come into AER. And then reserve and National Guard. If you're an active guard reserve, you're already fully eligible. If you're if you're an, an individual mobilization augmentee, a Title 32, an individual ready reserve, if we bring you on to active duty on the 31st day, you become eligible. Very good. We also waive that frequently. Uh, if there's a natural disaster, the most common is most most recent one that we had that was pretty significant was Hurricane Maria down in Puerto Rico in the Virgin Islands. Yeah. That devastated that area. Uh, we provided almost $3 million in grants that they don't have to pay back to reserve and National Guard soldiers that were not called to active duty. 
we do that for forest fires, floods. I uh, noticed a lot of your press releases have a lot of a lot of disasters on there. Hey, if you're in this area of, of, yeah. of disaster operations, let's say, uh, you guys do offer that. Yeah, so we work very closely with the Army National Guard uh, Bureau as well as the U.S. Army Reserve commanders and sergeants majors. And if they hear about a or we see it on the national news, if there's a some kind of a natural disaster, we will engage with the local folks. A lot of times we'll talk to the uh, civilian aides, to the secretary of the Army, find out what's going on in their state. And is this something we, we think we want to go ahead and, and waive that requirement for the Reserve and National Guard? Gotcha. By the way, we turn away less than 1% of the people that come into AER. And usually if they that's for something that's prohibited by Army regulation from us supporting, for example, legal fees. Uh, we also don't pay for marriages or divorces, by the way. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and the fact that you're bringing that up tells me that's at least been tried. Of course. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and the idea is that, you know, this what AER is about is helping you for something that you should have planned for, but perhaps gotten a tough spot. Uh, by the way, the most common thing that people come to AER for is one is car repair. We also do car replacement up to $4,000. The second in the last few years that's been very common is rent and deposit on rent. PCS do a new installation, don't have on-post housing, got to go off, high cost area. You, you have to put down a month's rent, a month's deposit, open yeah. up all those things. Yeah. The Department of Defense recently changed back the way it used to be. Used to, The last, I think it's five, six years, when you were PCSing, you used to be able to draw dislocation allowance before you came to your new installation. Yeah, I remember that. What they did, I think, five, six years ago is they said, no, you draw that after you file your claim, after you've already PCSed. That puts some folks in tough spot. Yeah. Department of Defense reviewed it again, said, hmm, this isn't working. So I, I anticipate that the demand for rent and deposit of rent will probably go back down again based on the the, th- the uh, review that DOD did in reinstituting. You can draw dislocation allowance at your current duty station before you PCS. Interesting. And it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. Going back to uh, uh, some, you know, it's interesting. I didn't know about the uh, the survivors of fallen service members. Um, talk to me about the scholarships. I, you know, I, I always remember, you know, hey, help you pay your bill. And I remember that part of the really fun. I don't, I don't remember scholarships. So spouses and children can apply for scholarships. Yeah, so all of our programs are needs-based. There's an exception I'll talk about in a minute, but it's based on your family budget, where you are financially, and we take a look at that. So for scholarships, it's again, it's a similar needs-based process. You do have to submit, you go on our website, the scholarship applications there, it's very pretty basic, but you also have to submit a federal aid uh, form. It's called FAFSA. And that kind of lays out your family's ability to cover college. We look at those two things, and then we base the amount of the ward of the grant based on on your family's ability to pay for college. Almost like a Yellow River program. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. So spouses can apply anytime during the year. The average spouse scholarship is usually around $1,800 to $2,000, depending on how many spouses apply and what our board of managers approves. And then all, and then for, and then children apply between January and April, kind of focused on the fall semester. Average scholarship for a child somewhere between twenty five hundred and three thousand. Is that going to pay for a full ride to University of Virginia? No, but it gets you started, and you can apply each year that you're in an undergraduate status. Spouses, as long as they have go to an uh, apply at an accredited organization, university could be online. They have to carry at least six hours. Children got to carry at least 12 hours and maintain a 2.0, which for me would have been pretty tough in college, actually, to tell you the <laughs> truth. One other scholarship program I'd really like to highlight, um, we have what's called the 9-11 Scholarship Program. 
And what this program does is any military, any army member who was either killed or seriously injured in the Pentagon day of 9-11, this fund pays for the complete education of the spouse or children uh, of that military member to include now graduate school. Uh, we've we've had about uh, 40 folks go through this program, tune of several million dollars. Every one of them has a story. It's absolutely incredible. And if they get into Harvard, this fund will pay for the full cost of Harvard. So it, it warms your heart. Most recently, Tammy LaCroix brought this family up to us. They have The mother has two kids. The daughter has gone to college and used the 9-11 fund, but the son has uh, autism. And she was concerned that when she's no longer around, what's going to happen to her son? So she came and talked to Tammy and said, look, there's a program where I can send my son during the week to a boarding school, learn life skills, comes home on the weekend. That'll give him the ability to to manage life. It's not a traditional college education. And Tammy said, I recommend we approve this. And us and the board like, no question. At this point in in the night, um, uh, and I... I think it was around 2 a.m. Someone lowered an American flag from the top of the Pentagon. I, my memory is, was it, it just appeared. I got the impression, that, this is my impression, that someone who worked at the Pentagon knew where the closest flag was, ordered it to be retrieved, and ordered it lowered over, um, over what was now sacred ground. Uh, and I, I presume they either worked with Arlington, fire, to hang it, um, just, this is just happening. And later on in the morning, the later on the, the, the small flag was replaced with a much larger flag um, that you see now in the very famous picture of the firefighters hanging it off the side of the Pentagon. Yeah. But many, as many people, but not many people know, there were actually two. And, and the and no, I had no idea. I, I felt like at the time it was a sign of respect for our fallen and an emblem for our resolve to carry on as a country together. And at the end of the day, that's what our flag stands for. And, and that's why I volunteered for the Carry the Load. And that's why the Carry the Flag program is so special to me, because it teaches our young people about the symbolism of the flag that it stands for and what it represents. We all come together and stand together to serve our veterans. We invest in the latest technology. We take the time to train the next generation of doctors and nurses. We work together to make sure we heal their bodies and their minds. This is our mission. More than 300,000 of us working as one, together with families and loved ones. No matter where they live in this country, we'll be there. We stand strong, united. Stand with us in caring for our veterans. That is it for this week's episode. As always, if you like this podcast, if you enjoy it, let others know by hitting that subscribe button and leaving a review on your podcatcher of choice. That will push us up in the algorithms, giving more veterans a chance to catch during the battle and everything in it. All the benefits, breakdown episodes, all the interviews, all the news releases, etc. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, Pinterest, LinkedIn, 
DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, no matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than myself to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. Next week, we are finally, after three weeks, back to our regular scheduled programming. January 11th, kicking off 2021 with a great interview. Can't wait to bring it to you. We'll see you right here next week. Take care.